Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my whoopnacker friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we construct a deconstruction of the construct of construct validity, constructively. Along the way, we also mention Jacques, Sheep STDs, Bill Clinton, College Admissions, Touching a Giant Turtle, Butt Winking, Cadaver Bingo, Nomological Networks, Teen Spirit, Playing Drop the Hanky, Ticket to the Prom, and Lipstick on a Pig. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So you are a very generous person, and I often find myself in a place where I sincerely thank you for things. You send me things, and it's a completely unreciprocated relationship because I don't think I've sent you anything ever. And I have shown up unannounced in your house and been expected to be fed. Whether or not we're here. So I'm still a little freaked out because I stayed at your house when you were not there. And it was six months later, I found out you had a nanny cam. And I spent hours retracing in my mind, what did I do and where did I do it? Oh, God, we own you. I sincerely find myself in many situations wanting to give you a thanks for things that you have done. And I want to start today by thanking you in a similar vein. I want to thank you for allowing my family to have one of the biggest arguments we have had (laughs) as a family in really maybe a couple years. And it is entirely your doing. You're welcome. Yes. You, out of the blue and unannounced, sent me the game Boulder Dash. Oh, it's the best. Kind of. It's kind of the best. (laughs) I'm so lucky is here I have these 16-year-old kids who still, within reasonable parameters, want to spend time with us. Mm -hmm. And Christy said, let's play a game tonight. I want to play a game. And I said, oh, Greg sent me. Let's play this one. And so we sat down and we proceeded Mm -hmm. to have one of the most vicious arguments that we've had. (laughs) For those of you who aren't familiar with Balderdash, you're given cards and they give you a word that has some definition. It's an atypical word. And the version you gave me of the game, they give you a date, a famous date in history. Mm -hmm. And then each person has to write down a definition or an answer to the question. And the card reader knows the real one. And then you read out all of those that were submitted. And then you vote in some way on which one is right. And if you get it right, you get points. Mm -hmm. But it pretty rapidly devolved into (laughs) Alaska wasn't a state in 1820. (laughs) Well, how am I supposed to know that? And it just kind of went downhill from there. (laughs) You sent me to public school. (laughs) So I just want to thank you for that. It is hands down our favorite family game because it allows all of us to really flex our, I think, genetic level skills at lying, just making up stuff that is so believable, but but so wrong. It's the best. 
I hope one day you will come to feel the same way about it. I'm going to ambush you a little bit on this. Uh, okay. Today we're going to talk about construct validity and we're going to talk about naming things and defining things and measuring things. Mm-hmm. Last night we did our usual, I was sitting on the couch and by the way, it was awesome is it was an uncharacteristically cold night last night. So I had a fire in the fireplace, which is mm. getting very late in the season. We had no opening gag. Right. We usually do our texting at 10 or 11 o'clock at night as to what are we going to do in the morning. And unbeknownst to you is I have developed an opening gag for today. Okay, (laughs) great. (laughs) I went to my balderdash box and it was still filled with all the slips of paper. Uh huh. (laughs) All right. I want you to go to your balderdash box. I'm going to hit pause and I want you to see if there's slips and I want to give each other some of these word definitions and see if you can identify the correct one. You mean the ones that our family made up? Exactly. The lies. Exactly. <laughs> okay. The lies. All right. Yep. So I'm going to hit pause, go get it, and then come back. All right. All right. I have secured the box. All right. So I want you to open it. Did you identify a few definitions and their lies? It turns out we're not as tidy in how we put the game away, right? (laughs) There's all these slips all over. I see three anyway that I could reconstruct here. Okay, so pull those out. Do you want to start or should I? Well, what are we doing? Okay, I'm going to read you the word. I'm going to read the four definitions because there are four of us in my family. And one is real and three are fake. And you have to tell me what the real one is. Okay. All right, I'm going to begin. (laughs) The pressure. Dewlap. D-E-W-L-A-P. Dewlap. Okay. Licking moisture off of grass or plants. The loose skin on the neck of a cow. The Country Manor in England, where Downton Abbey was filmed, an STD contracted from sheep. (laughs) I happen to know what the name of the STD contracted from sheep is. (laughs) So It's all about reduction, right? It's like test-taking strategy, so now you're down to three. I'm going to go with the the second one that had to do with the skin fold or something. You are correct. Dewlap is the loose flap of skin on the neck of a cow. Well done. Thank you. All right. I have a real one and four distractors. Is that fair? Whatever. The word is alipeel. A-L-I-P-I-L-E. Alipeel. A weed used as naturopathic remedy for tooth pain. A servant employed to remove unwanted armpit hair. (laughs) A floral arrangement to commemorate the birth of a child. Architectural term for an exposed decorative beam and a massage technique used specifically for shin splints. All right, so similar to your knowledge of STDs and sheep, (laughs) I have an armpit hair specialist, Uh and that's not the word he uses every morning that he comes to the house. (laughs) I'm going to go with a decorative beam. You would be incorrect. The correct answer is a servant employed to remove unwanted <laughs> armpit hair. So you might want to let your guy know. I am going to talk to Jacques when he comes back for my afternoon session. Spurple. S-P-E-R-P-L-E. Spurple. A color hue popular among impressionist painters. A short-lived 1980s sitcom. To run off in different directions. An STD contracted from sheep. 
I'm playing with 16-year-old daughters. You have to factor that in. It's got to be right sometime. I'm going to go with running off in different directions. Oh, my God. You are correct. All right. All right. The word is whoopnacker. W-O-O-P-K-N-A-C-K-E-R. Whoopnacker. An aggressive, loud-mouthed person. A water-dwelling fowl related to the flamingo. A type of knot once used to tie horses to a hitching post. An Amish quilting style using only two colors of fabric. A drunken belly laugh. Whoopnacker. Any of those could be legit. I have memories in college of being called a whoopnacker, so I'm going for the first option. (laughs) Did you go to college in 1843? (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? Yes, that is the right answer, but... (laughs) My God, that boy's a whoopnacker, he is... (laughs) Read the definition again. An aggressive, loudmouthed person. Yeah, there you go. Last one. My last one. Snollygoster. S-N-O-L-L-Y-G-O-S-T-E-R. Snollygoster. A person who cannot be trusted, particularly a politician, a heavily inebriated and belligerent person, a derisive term for someone who does not like soccer, An STD given to a sheep. (laughs) I'm going to go with someone who doesn't like soccer. Oh, thank goodness. You are wrong. Okay. It is a person who can't be trusted, particularly a politician. Wow, a snollygoster. Excellent. All right, so I do have one more that I've reconstructed from the scribbles here. The word is buttwink. (laughs) B-U-T... W-I-N-K. Buttwink. A pair of intertwined copulating caterpillars. A variety of bird. An old English term for a spittoon. A birthmark appearing on the earlobe. The lower rectangle or trapezoid of an antique keyhole. Buttwink. Oh, darn. That last one has a draw. But if I ever panic and can't figure it out, there's always some kind of bird named that. So I'm going to say it's like a long-tailed, ground-dwelling buttwink, which is some kind of bird. You're right. (laughs) Damn it. You're right. So thank you very much for that argument. Not the game. Uh Screw you on the game. Thank you for the argument to the point that we were not able to finish. So why I thought of that last night was one is I was frantically thinking of any kind of opening gag because we had to have something. But also, it's such a great example of giving different definitions for the same thing and the naming problem and constructs and what are constructs and how do we define constructs and how do we measure constructs and the fundamental role that constructs play in what is it, how do we assess it, and how do we embed it within a broader statistical model runs through start to finish of everything we do and just puzzling through that a little bit. I like it. Yeah, construct validity is messy, I would say, because constructs are messy. They're slippery things, right? And our attempt to measure those can be very, very challenging. In fact, Even the word validity is something that people say it. It flows out of their mouth as though we all know exactly what they're talking about. But even the word validity has a lot of different components to it, ways that people think about it, misunderstandings about it. So there's a lot here to pull apart for sure. 
I completely agree. And it is somewhat ironic that there are different definitions of validity, right? <laughs> it's, it's like, is it any wonder people don't like us in academia? It's like the old Bill Clinton, you know, for those of us in my generation, our generation. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yeah. And it's like that right there. That's why people hate us. <laughs> but you can think about, like, is your driver's license valid? Is your library card valid? Is it a valid argument? What I would maybe out of the gate start is take an old school Shaddish Cook and Campbell. Validity is the approximate truth of an inference. Ooh. So it's not necessarily the truth as God sees it, but the approximate truth. And then what's super important when I teach this in my own research methods class is it is a valence of an inference. So you're making some conclusion, and validity is the approximate truth of that inference. And so all of Cook and Campbell is built around broadly the four types of validity, internal validity, external validity, construct validity, and statistical conclusion validity. And all of those are the characteristics of the inferences that you're making from the specific to the more general. So that'd be my initial pitch of what do we mean by validity? I like that in that it sort of is taking the where the rubber hits the road approach to validity, right? In the end, are you doing the right thing? Are you doing at least approximately the right thing? Now, what are all the pieces that we have to get in place leading up to you being able to do the right thing? And validity, whether we're talking about construct validity or other aspects of validity, it's not an all or nothing thing. It's not, it is valid, it isn't valid. There are degrees of validity that we need to think about. So when someone says, oh, we have found this instrument to be valid, that's wrong on multiple levels. It isn't valid or invalid per se. It has a degree of validity, and it has a degree of validity specifically in a context for a purpose to be able to reach particular inferences. So I think right out of the gate, we have to loosen things up a little bit. That's another holiday rant that I could go on of just reiterating what you said is how often do we see we used assessment instrument X, which has been proven to be reliable and valid. Mm -hmm. If you're listening and you're thinking about these kind of things in your own work, never write that sentence. <laughs> you don't prove an instrument is valid. Just as you said, is there's person, place, and time, there are different uses. It could be highly valid in one setting and fundamentally flawed in another setting for the very same items with the very same responses. So never say an instrument has been proven valid and you're going to use it here. Mm -hmm. But let me pan back just a moment. There are a ton of very technical definitions that we can give for this. And it does get very philosophical very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much we want to get down into the weeds. I don't know how well prepared I am to go into the weeds. I'm not a philosopher of science. But when I think about construct validity, I think, are we measuring what we think we are? That's it. Done. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody. <laughs> As always, we appreciate your time. Yeah. Well, that's got two ends to it. Are we measuring? That means that we have some kind of measure in our hand what we think we are measuring. So then there's some construct, something that we think about, some particular entity, right? Some intangible trait that we think people differ on. And so it is all about the connection between the measure and the thing that we think about, that construct or trait. 
And we want to make sure that there is a link between those two. And that's a very difficult thing to do for a variety of reasons, but probably core is what is a construct? How do we get at that? How do we validate something by saying, oh, yes, this is related to something that none of us can see or touch? This is one of my favorite things to teach about, especially to undergrads, because a lot of times it's the first time they've thought about these things. And it's really fun to walk a student through some of this stuff. And one thing I really like is start a discussion about saying, well, how does this appear in everyday life? Mm -hmm. And so maybe just as a broad starting point, something I really find interesting, I listen to these news stories on business. I don't have any business background, but for some reason, I just find it interesting, the economy and how it plays in. And (sighs) I know where this is going. Oh, just leave him out of it. Dr. Michelle said, as long as neither of us raise it. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. But for example, what is the economy? So just take out of newspaper today. Is the economy improving or not? Well, first, what the hell is the economy? How do you define that theoretically? Is it in terms of GDP? Is it in terms of Mm -hmm. national debt? Is it in terms of the quality of the stock market? How do you even define it? The Dow is not the economy, and the economy is not the Dow. And then for whom? I heard a great line, we're in a new roaring 20s right now. For some people, Mm -hmm. but not for others. So what is the economy? How do you assess it? But then what is the meaning of that? Is that the economy, right? The stock market, is that the economy for an 18-year-old kid working in a fast food restaurant? I mean, we can think about these things of, well, what do you mean by that every single hour that we navigate our day? Something that I'm really interested in, and part of it is some work I'm doing, and part of it is my daughters are approaching college. You've already put one through college, and your Mm -hmm. boys are approaching college. Maybe something to puzzle through is I'm fascinated by the notion of college admissions. Mm -hmm. So University of North Carolina, I'm going to round off numbers. We get 40,000 applications in any given year, and we admit Mm 4,000. So if you think about how do you evaluate, rank, and select for promise and potential to succeed at the University of North Carolina? So we can start just pulling things out of the air, right? Someone might say, we value creativity, we value achievement. The University of Maryland says that there are 21 different dimensions that they try to evaluate people on. Is one of those dimensions comfort in touching a giant turtle that 10,000 other people have touched? (laughs) You're being a whoopnacker again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so of those dimensions, can you name two or three dimensions that the University of North Carolina says these are key things that we would like for our incoming class to have? I'm not able to as an official representative of the University of North Carolina, but I can tell you things that would arise just from my own thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Things like creativity, leadership ability, perseverance, contributions to diversity, and academic preparedness. All right. So you pulled a number of constructs straight out of your backside. I butt winked it. (laughs) Ah, that's good. I'm going to throw a dart (laughs) at one of these, and I'm going to throw the dart right at perseverance. Seems like a reasonable construct. If by construct we mean it is some intangible trait along which people vary, something that clearly we value and we want to be able to assess differences in for particular purposes, 
I would imagine, though, if I laid perseverance on a table in front of a bunch of people, I would get as many interpretations of perseverance as there are people. So what the heck do we mean by perseverance to start? Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) Dude. (laughs) Okay. But you have shown a clear proclivity to be able to make stuff up. So I'm going to ask you to dig deep. First thing I would do is to say, well, why is it important? The university on campus experience is challenging. You are exposed to things you've not been exposed to before. You maybe have failure experiences that you've not had before. Mm -hmm. You may have been the valedictorian in your high school, but now you're surrounded by other valedictorians who are also gunning in the class for the best grade. Mm -hmm. Maybe you are exposed to something that you've not been exposed to before that is difficult and you're not good at it. That's one of the tough things as at college is it's as important to find out what you're not good at as what you are good at. And we want a student body that is not going to collapse under the weight of those stresses and challenges and things that occur on campus in that way. So perseverance, why it's important to me, is that you're going to be able to push yourself through those and come out stronger on the other side. All right, so what is perseverance is I'm just making up a definition, the ability to remain on task and remain motivated despite pressure to fail or stop or quit. That would be my theoretical definition as you continue on in the presence of stress and strain. Then it becomes, well, how do you assign a numerical measure? Good old Stevens, mm-hmm. right? I'll go out in my backyard. <laughs> I I'll follow not. my grid. It's very complicated to find all of these people. This is like Hollywood where you go and they hand you these maps where you can go on the tour of the stars' homes. There must be a map to your backyard oh, yeah. where you can walk around and go, oh, is that? Stevens is G16. <laughs> It's like cadaver bingo. Yeah. (laughs) And so I go to G16 and I drag him in by the rapidly decaying shin and I prop him up. But it is the principled assignment of numbers to observation. So if we define perseverance in a particular theoretical way, then how do we observe the operational manifestation of that? And how do we assign numerical values to that in some meaningful and reliable way? So imagine someone comes to us, as people often do, and they say, here's $4 million. We would like you to develop a valid measure, whatever that means, a valid measure of perseverance. How about if we talk through the kinds of things that we would do to earn the four, well, for you to earn your 26,000 and me to earn the remaining. So we'll use the same equation for apportioning that we do in the past. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, the attorneys agreed. So I think of construct validity as having a lot of different pieces to it, right? Even construct validity isn't one thing. I'll throw some of them out and we can seize upon some of them, some more than others. But I think about construct validity as involving face validity, uh, involving content validity, predictive validity, concurrent validity, divergent or discriminant validity, convergent validity. I think of all of these things as part of making what we could call an evidentiary argument for the construct validity associated with a particular measure in a particular context. And I love all of those dimensions that you identified. 
And it's interesting because you can trace the historical roots of this entire conversation back 70 or 80 years at this point. People have been talking about this for quite a long time, but if you talk about what was the first major treatment of construct validity, mm-hmm. I think you can trace this back to Kronbach and Meal. So like 55 or exactly. something? Exactly. It was mid-50s. Mm-hmm. It was a charge from the rather young APA in trying to understand, like out of World War II came all of these assessments and there was oh, this yeah. flourishing in the psychological sciences and a couple of people stepping back and saying, wait, 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 what are we dealing with? How do we evaluate this? And so Kronbach and Meal who are two of arguably the most important people in these kind of philosophy of science thing. Paul Meal, I just, I never had an opportunity to meet him, but his readings I just cherish. But they talked about this thing that they defined as the nomological network. Nomological. And if I remember from clearly the definitional expressions that I demonstrated with the Balderdash cards, (laughs) is there's some Latin root in there of lawful. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it is. Nomo, whatever. It's a sheep STD, actually. (laughs) That you (laughs) give to a sheep or get from a sheep because those are two different things. (laughs) What it is is before you can even begin to think about construct validity, you have to embed that within a theoretical network of constructs. And the nomological part is how do they relate to one another? And... Mm -hmm. It's very daunting to think in this way because it's not the case where, hey, Greg, let's come up with a 10-item measure for perseverance because somebody's going to give us some money to do it. This is big-ticket stuff. You have to embed this within a theoretical framework of what is it related to? What is it not related to? Why is it important in this system that we're studying? And I think you did really nice touchstones on the face content predictive things. So maybe we could pick away at some of those and think about, well, what do each mean individually? Sure. I think the easiest one to address, maybe, is face validity. I always think of face validity as like a smell test. Does it smell like perseverance? Does it look like perseverance? Does it smell like teen spirit? (laughs) So face validity is usually assessed by getting a bunch of people who think they know what they're talking about to take a look at whether it's items, whether it's tests, etc., And saying, do we agree on what perseverance is? And do we think that this is a reflection of perseverance? But it's not just experts who do it. It's also getting people who might be novices, people who are part of the group that you might wish to assess as well. Because if they look at these kinds of items and measures, and especially with regard to items and are interpreting them in entirely different ways than you intended, that's also good to know as well. So gathering information, really just to try to be able to say, does this look like perseverance? And I think this is a really important first step, especially ultimately if you're creating an instrument that you want to put out there in the marketplace, in the science world. If it doesn't look like what you're trying to get at, then you've got problems out of the gate. 
I like that a lot. And I like that notion of, you know, ask people. So when I was trained in clinical, my advisor, Lori Chasson, had some just really very concrete kind of things that she would encourage us. And she would say, well, if you want to know something about the client, why don't you ask them? Right. <laughs> because there's this incredible draw yep. to make things way over-engineered. Totally. It's like, so tell me, do you feel depressed? You know, ask the person. But I would argue that that is incredibly important, but it's not always requisite, right? So you can go back in history of assessment, mm -hmm. and the MMPI was empirically developed, the Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory, MMPI. Mm -hmm. It's been all revised. It's the MMPI-2 now. But the MMPI was primarily empirically developed, which is this Wisconsin Q-sort cards where they would just rank order all of these things. And they kind of didn't care so much about face validity at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's always funny if you looked at some of the items. First, they were developed in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of colloquialisms from that time. But also a lot is why on earth is this item on the subscale and the answer is because it discriminated subgroups. Right. One of my all-time favorite items, and this is a legit item, is do you enjoy playing Drop the Hanky? <laughs> That's a legit item. Look it up. Do you enjoy playing Drop the Hanky? And I'm forgetting now what scale that loads on if you say, yes, you enjoy playing Drop the Hanky. But there are many advantages to achieving face validity and not a minor one is if you're giving this instrument to an individual to fill out, you don't want them to look at it and say, why are you asking me this question? What does this have to do with anything? There are advantages in face validity of, yes, if we're measuring perseverance, these are certainly items that seem like assess that. But I also feel like there's a buy-in that you're not putting a respondent in an awkward position of saying, why on earth are you asking me this? Mm -hmm. This is irrelevant to why I'm here. Following up on one of the things that you said, if you don't have face validity, it still might be getting at the construct that you care about. Is that fair? That's exactly right. I would say the opposite is true, though, importantly, and that is that... Just because something has face validity doesn't mean it is getting at the construct that you care about. Even if a bunch of pencil necks are sitting around a table saying, yes, yes, that is perseverance, doesn't actually mean that it's perseverance, right? Because the same pencil necks sat around and thought, for example, that you could gain insight into personality by looking at people's handwriting, right? Oh, yes, it makes total sense that when people do a loop on their why, you know what that tells us? Or the same people who thought that bumps on the head might provide particular insights. Hey, leave phrenology out of this. <laughs> it's coming back. <laughs> so face validity is not enough. I would say it's important, but it's not a gatekeeper. Yeah. There are situations where you can lack face validity and it's still valid and reliable. But more often than not, you need to be face valid. And to me, that kind of gets you into the building. That's the ticket to the prom. No one's going to talk to you otherwise, right? Exactly. It's almost like a sequential job interview is we've reviewed your 20 items and we agree these appear to tap into the construct you say you did. Now you're going to go to the next phase of evaluation. 
Okay. So what is the next phase? Is it content validity? Is that? Yeah, let's go with that. Well, content validity is sort of like what it sounds like. You want to make sure that you're covering all aspects of the construct that you're interested in. We'll come back to the Perseverance one in a second. I don't know anything about Perseverance, but oh, I just want to stop right now. <laughs> and you get a one. <laughs> no, please go ahead, quitter. Yeah. Like depression, for example. If someone said that the construct we are interested in is depression, what would give us content validity around that? Because depression has physical manifestations. It has emotional manifestations. It has cognitive manifestations. And if someone was trying to get at this construct of depression through the development of an inventory or some other way to assess it, we would want to make sure that unless the construct is something narrow that's specific to physical, then you want to make sure that the content coverage exists. And the way that I think about this is all of the measures that we have have some overlap. And the constructs that we're trying to get at often live in the overlap. And if we only have some corner of a particular domain that we're interested in, their overlap, while it might contain some of the construct, it's got other stuff as well. So we want to make sure that we lay out what we mean by this landscape of depression or back to the other one. What do we mean by perseverance, broadly speaking? Let's get everything on the table so that we can make sure that we're covering it. What I love about your description of that is it's another punch in the face of the importance of theory. Because you can't do anything of what you just described without having some theoretical model. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by depression? So there's depressed affect. Are you sad? Do you have hopelessness about the future? Do you feel helpless about your ability to address it? Beck's cognitive triad of having depressive visions of the past, present, and future, right? You need a theory. But as you say, there are also hypochondriacal dimensions to a depression. But then do you include anxiety in depression, or is anxiety a separate measure? Or is anxiety correlated with depression? Mm -hmm. And so part of that nomological network, but not depression. And then where does social withdrawal go? Is social withdrawal a separate identity itself. So now you have social withdrawal, depression, anxiety. All of that is dictated by a theoretical model. It always drives me a little crazy when you're part of a project and somebody says, well, we developed a 10 item scale for this. And the, the death knell for me is, well, it's reliable. Yeah. <laughs> Chromebox alpha was 0.82. You know, it's like, okay, wow, that comes like 32 steps later. So what I really like is that notion of you have to have a theoretical model before you can even talk about content. What are these dimensions? A lot of times what this gets you into is univariate versus multivariate expressions of your construct. So what I just described in depression is, is there just a unidimensional construct of depression or is it bidimensional? Do you have depressed mm -hmm. affect and hypochondriasis? Is it tridimensional where you add anxiety onto that. And so I feel like content is often linked to dimensionality. And it also relates to, we can think about a set of items used to assess a particular construct as in an idealized world, a random sampling of a universe of items. Now that never happens, but 
Do we have a representative sampling of items that covers the content domains that our theory dictates exist? Yeah. And what we're worried about right now in this part of the conversation, I would say, is construct underrepresentation, that we don't have everything on the table that is relevant. We do run the risk, and this comes back to the nomological net issue, we run the risk of putting things on the table that don't belong. And that can happen when we don't have a well-defined theory. That can happen even if we think we do have a well-defined theory, right? We can introduce construct irrelevant kind of variants into this. One of the examples that I often think about is someone who is interested in developing a math test. And the math test is getting at people's ability to manipulate numbers but that can be confounded by word problems and the readability associated with the word problems. And people who don't have English as a first language, for example, if someone wants to know specifically about math ability and they say, well, we want to make sure that we get in all different kinds of math problems, okay. But when you start putting in things that have a higher premium on reading ability, you can actually be introducing construct irrelevant variants and that can be problematic. So the role of theory here and making sure you get the right things on the table in some complete set as best as you can, but not some irrelevant things, that's a very tricky thing to do. Yeah, and one of the things Cook and Campbell warns us about, and any of us who have done this kind of work in practice knows and fears, is that notion of construct contamination, mm -hmm. where if you have maybe what is, in a simplified example, a bidimensional, so you have depression and anxiety, but you have 10 items that inextricably assess both, mm -hmm. then you have a contaminated assessment of your construct. And not only do you not reflect the theoretical thing that you believe to exist, but remember the whole point is to take these numerical values and take them elsewhere to do other things with, put them in a model, put them with other things in a correlation matrix, whatever it is you're going to do. And if you have construct contamination, you're going to occlude both predictor and criterion kind of relations because you functionally taken two buckets of paint and mix them together and you can't get it back out. Maybe we can't get them back out. You may have a theory that's not very well defined and you think that they belong together. But if you are asking questions about whether or not they belong together, if you have a theory that is trying to question whether or not they belong together... Some of the techniques that we use for construct validation try to get at the ability to pull things apart that shouldn't be together and keep things together that ought to be together, right? We have issues of convergent validity and discriminant validity that have been talked about for, you know, again, 70-some years if we go back to some of the early work, for example, on multi-trait, multi-method kinds of stuff. Hmm. And so I think very naturally from what you're talking about, the topics of convergent and discriminant validity follow. And I always think of convergent validity, for example, is making sure that you got the apples with the apples and discriminant validity is making sure you keep the apples and the oranges separate from each other. Mm -hmm. And we have a variety of ways of doing that, starting with some of the original, more primitive ways. You're absolutely right that we have methods that we can do this and we can look at factorial dimensions. We can look at one factor, two factor, three factor. But if we're thinking about this in kind of a sequential way, what I was envisioning is an item that confounds two things at once. Mm. So we can have five depression items, five anxiety items, and we have certain things that we can do to separate those factorially and dimensionally. But if we have an item, and you can think about it for you factor analysts as something that cross-loads, it loads mm -hmm. on two things. The item itself 
is potentially contaminated. That one I find particularly challenging. And so you're right with the convergent discriminant validity. I have to say, all right, so this goes back to what? Campbell and Fisk also in the 50s. 59. We've got Campbell and Fisk, multi-trait, multi-method. I am in the middle ground on discriminant and convergent validity. And I'll tell you why. There are two reasons. One is something I learned from Leona Aiken in multivariate stat that has played out for the subsequent 30 years is all of psychology is correlated point three. <laughs> so to identify one correlation that is large and one correlation that is small is very hard when everything is correlated point three. Now, that does get us to the MTMM approach, which we can talk about in just a moment. But a lot of that is we use the same methodology. We use the same reporter. We use the same paper and pencil, whatever, is we're baking in some background correlation. That's part of it. But the other part is if you have this predictor criterion kind of validity, well, one of the rate limiting steps is the things that we're correlating it with have to be valid. Mm -hmm. And it starts cascading downhill of, well, wait a minute, what's the divergent and convergent validity of the divergent and convergent validity? And then we're off to the races. Yeah, that's exactly right. What is your recollection of Campbell and Fisk and the MTMM? I have a lot of different levels to my recollection. Maybe the best way to get into it is just to imagine an example. I might have multiple self-concepts, let's say. Science self-concept, math self-concept, English self-concept, and history self-concept. And I believe that those traits are things that are different. They might have some degree of relation, not just because of the cosmological cred constant of 0.3 that you mentioned, but because they're getting at things that are somewhat related. But I think that we can discriminate among them. Imagine that I have measured them in a variety of ways, that you give me some measure where I respond to these things. You give my parent a measure about these things for me. You give my teacher a measure of these things for me. Maybe you give my best friend a measure of these things for me. And if we set up a giant correlation matrix where we have each of these traits, multiple traits, that are assessed by each of these methods, multiple methods, we have a multi-trait, multi-method matrix. And if we get out our jeweler's loop and we stare at that matrix really, really closely, we should start to see certain patterns in those correlations. There are things that should correlate more highly than others. If we have, for example, my measure of my science self-concept and your assessment of my science self-concept and my parents and my teachers, we would expect those kinds of things to correlate relatively highly because even though they're using different methods, they are of the same trait. So the idea is that we're looking for patterns that help us to see, yes, there are higher correlations between things for which there should be higher correlations and lower correlations when we start crossing, for example, trait method boundaries. But at the end of the day, you're staring at a matrix. And what I love about that approach is what we're trying to do is take things apart a little bit mm -hmm. so we can think about one of the threats to construct validity are monomethod bias, monotrait bias, right? Is that... I ask you about your self-concept, I only ask you, and I give you a single assessment, mm -hmm. all right? So I get some numerical value, and I can say, here's Greg's self-concept. But baked into that, that is inextricable based on that mono method is, well, maybe some part of your numerical score is due to your 
own lens through which you see your behavior, mm-hmm. right? So there's some, I hate the word bias. I find that a value-laden word. Agreed. I've done some work in this area with colleagues in Bauer taking the lead. We've recast that as perspective. You have a perspective, your spouse has a perspective, your teacher has a perspective. And so the MTMM model, which you're right, I love the jeweler's loop thought of looking at the matrix because Campbell and Fisk, that's what they were doing in the late 1950s. And we are now able to fit some formal models to that in a confirmatory factor model where we have a layer of latent variables for the traits, a layer of latent variables for the methods, and we link them to the appropriate items. And for you psychometricians, it's kind of a bifactor model, but there's some complexities to it. Mm-hmm. But what it is, is you're trying to partition that part of the response that's attributed to the trait, that part of the response that's attributed to the method, and you're able to better refine that convergent, divergent validity in a formal psychometric model. Unfortunately, I think it's one of those things that's profoundly powerful, but we don't often do. It's hard to get mom, dad, kid, peer, and teacher report Mm -hmm. so that you can do these kinds of analyses. But incredibly important to do so, right? To plan to do these kinds of things, to get multiple reporter things or multiple methods of observation. If I'm going to study maternal warmth, I'm not just going to ask mom how warm she is toward her new infant. I am also going to do observations, possibly video recordings and codings of that. I want to try to triangulate in on this and not wind up sort of painted into one corner of the particular domain that we're interested in here. So if I am interested in perseverance, coming back to that, how do I know that perseverance is something different from Or is it the same as grit? How do I know that these are different from or are they the same as hardiness? And we could probably list a number of other things that people invest a lot of energy into trying to define and differentiate. But I think it's our job to try to figure out, well, are these things related the way they ought to be related? Are they differentiable? Are they different in ways that they ought not to be? Do they relate differently to other things in ways that help us to believe these are different entities? So there's a lot of stuff that needs to go on here to try to establish both convergent and discriminant validity. And I love that you described the confirmatory factor approaches to multi-trait, multi-methods, because that's where you start to be able to create something that is more than the jeweler's loop, right? You have models that are testable, potentially falsifiable, or at the very least, models that can try to parse out what we might call method effects, or at least control for those, so that we can focus on the ability to discriminate among or fail to discriminate among a number of other traits that we're interested in, because otherwise method variability might be kind of messing up our ability to be able to do that. And to throw a line back to a prior episode and some things that have come up subsequently, I view this as one of the huge advantages of integrative data analysis, Mm -hmm. because when people talk about MTMM kinds of approaches, you often think about a single study. So you get parent-teacher-peer report and self-reporting, you do all of this. Well, a big advantage of combining independent samples into a joint sample and fitting models to that is you can have a natural way of having different contributing studies have different methods of assessments, have different reporters, use different measures. 
So another confound we build in is it becomes this kind of tail wagging the dog. Mm -hmm. These 10 items measure depression because depression are represented in these 10 items, which measure depression. It gets like (laughs) completely circular. It measures what the items assess. Mm -hmm. Well, what if we have 10 items that measure depression in one study, but a different 10 that measure depression in another, you have different manifestations of that. But what some work we've done, and if you're interested, it's called the tri-factor model. And the details aren't important, but Bauer's written about it, I've written about it, and colleagues on our group have. If you put together in an integrative data analysis, you might have one reporter in two studies. You might have two reporters in one study. You might have two different reporters in another study. Mm-hmm. And in those, two of the studies might be paper and pencil. One is Qualtrics. One is an in-person interview. Well, under assumptions, you can bolt those together to do this very thing. So all of this is just a reminder that there are ways that we can do this using existing data. It's the different blind people feeling the elephant is if you can put together six studies that have these different characteristics in the assessment, you can have vast contributions to construct validation. Absolutely. And knowing that you can do that, it can shape how you plan to do some of your construct Mm -hmm. validation studies, right? That from this site or from this team or from this, we're going to get these particular pieces. So you can actually plan to map out the elephant in very, very systematic ways that help you to provide evidence toward the construct validity. Yeah. Oh, I love that is everything I've been talking about is, hey, I found this one. I found this one. I found this one. But say you find two other people who you like and work well with and you design a study where each of you gets self-report from the adolescents in your sub part of the study, but one also gets parent, another one also gets peer, and another one also gets teacher. And then two years from now, you get back together and you have that multi-trait, multi-method matrix. I think there are great promise out there. But going back to your question about what is perseverance, how do you know if you have perseverance? The crazy thing is, is, and you alluded to this in one of your statements, but, you know, we get back to it depends. I think the point that you just made really is the important tieback point. One of the first things that we talked about was validity in terms of validity for what? And, you know, what are we trying to do with these kinds of ultimately scores that we believe are representing a construct? And the answer depends so much on context, the person, the place, the time, the purpose that we are doing. I think there's some things, if they're walkaway points that I would encourage that we all think about, myself included in my own work, is an instrument is not valid or not valid. So just reiterating a prior point is for whom, when, in what circumstance, serving what purpose. Another point is this is a constantly evolving process where theories change. Theories are updated. Theories are refined. And if one thing we hopefully have communicated in the last bit of conversation is that the theory and the assessment and that nomological network are all functionally linked with one another. And so as we refine our theories, our measures should change. You can think back what was something that we thought it was Uh, five years ago and there's some new theoretical development and we can refine that and maybe we just 
change our description of what those items represent, but maybe we have to revise our items. We have to add items. We have to remove items, whatever that might be. So it's a constantly evolving process that the assessment is inextricably linked to theory and theory is inextricably linked to the assessment. Which means that however hard we work to try to gather evidence for the validity of something that we have right now, that evidence has to be revisited. Right. Validity, this is going to sound really corny, but, you know, validity, it's a journey. It's a, it has to be a process and it's not a process that you go through. And then when you're done, you go, wow, we just did something great. It's something that has to keep being revisited because contexts change, times change. Things that we were assessing a while ago don't mean the same thing. In many instances, we're still asking about whether or not you like playing drop the hanky or whatever the heck that was. <laughs> But yeah, I think for me, that's one of the walkaway points, that validity is something that you have to commit to revisiting for the whole duration of your relationship with that construct. And that's the fun part. So going back to this admissions work, it's this logical syllogism that very rapidly, if you're ever part of these discussions, gets really interesting really fast. Well, how do you select somebody for college? Well, what mm -hmm. do you value? I really can't tell you what I value until you tell me what kind of person we want in college. And then you say, well, for that, well, what's the purpose of college? Who do we want to turn out? Mm -hmm. Well, you work yourself back and all of a sudden, within a matter of minutes, you're saying, well, why does a kid go to college at all? That's right. <laughs> I don't know if you get these. With the pandemic, we haven't had the backyard picnics and things that we usually have, but we have indirect ones. And I find it really interesting is my wife and I are both university professors, and we put the least amount of pressure on our kids for what they should be doing now to prepare for college than any of their friends. Right. And their parents, I have to try really hard to not talk in these kind of settings because the firmness in the belief of what a kid should be doing in high school to prepare for the application so that they're going to get in, it's really sometimes overwhelming. And my daughters themselves say, oh, I feel so bad about so-and-so because her parents are making her do this and that and the other because it's going to look good right. on her college application. Yeah. We need more extracurriculars. We need more community service. Exactly. And it's this whole thing of, well, to look good mm -hmm. on your college application. Well, what do you mean? Right. That's what you should always ask yourself. What do you mean? Right. Because that is construct validity. It'll look good. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what does it represent? What does that experience indicate? What does that reflect as promise in success in college? This is stuff that we deal with on a daily basis. We should not only in our own work respect, right? There are things that we should respect, and that is a big one, is respect construct validity, but also be passionate about it. This is what we do, right? Is this subsumes everything. You can do the craziest ass bivariate latent curve model with structured residuals, but if you blow construct validity... Dude, you're done. Absolutely. Wow, you modeled the shit out of something. I don't know what it is. A random number generator. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> right? There's individual variability and developmental trajectories of crap. <laughs> Let's slap some lipstick on this pig and get it out the door. On that note, 
on that note, respect it, embrace it, and have fun with it. Because I really do think this is one of the fun parts of our day job. What do we believe to exist? How do we believe that that is manifested? How do we principally assign numerical values to that? And how do we use those in some meaningful and thoughtful way? That's why people give us money when we get up in the morning. And I think that's the most fun part of our job. Totally agreed. All right. Wow, I butt-winked that out, huh? You, <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> I, I have a new word, man. I, <laughs> I just love, this is the most symbolic part, that you're just going with your own definition of butt-wink. <laughs> Even though there is a well-established one, you're going with your own. As always, thank you, everyone. We really do appreciate your time. Oh, that must be your Ali Peel, Jacques, here to remove your unwanted armpit hair. Oh, man, it's 1130. You are exactly right. <laughs> he was just here at 8. <laughs> Enjoy. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your entertainment during spring cleaning. And please leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get amazing Quantitude merch for unique last-minute Mother's Day gifts at RedBubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access in low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. Even after 67 episodes, no one can tell us what underlying construct we actually represent. Quantitude is brought to you by Oil of Oink Lay, the premium pig lipstick preferred by four out of five scientists who didn't bother to adequately define their theoretical constructs. By Drop the Hanky, a perfectly innocent Victorian parlor game that sounds wildly inappropriate, even though it isn't. And by Mother's Day, reminding you of the top ten things you'll never hear your mother say. How on earth can you see the TV sitting so far back? Yeah, I used to skip school a lot too. Ah, just leave all the lights on. It makes the house look cheery. Let me smell that shirt. Yeah, you're good for another week. Oh, go ahead and keep the stray dog, honey. I'll be glad to feed him, walk him every day. Well, if Greg's mom says it's okay, that's good enough for me. Ah, curfew's just a general time to shoot for. It's not like I'm running a prison around here. I don't have a tissue, honey. Just use your sleeve. Don't bother wearing a jacket. I'm sure the wind chill is bound to improve. And absolutely, becoming a quantitative methodologist sounds like a great idea. This is most definitely not NPR. NPR.